Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football in association with SoccerX. Connecting football for 25 years. Hello and welcome to the Football Code Business Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Manby, and in this episode, I talked to Kaylee Grieve, leading on women's football marketing at UEFA and one of the people responsible for getting eyes and ears on the Women's Euro 2022. Now, we're releasing this podcast just in time for the tournament kickoff, and while it might sound like a cliche, women's football has never been in a stronger, more popular position, judging by pretty much any metric you want to use to measure it. Against that backdrop, I asked Kaylee about the importance of this coming month and UEFA's goals for the tournament. She gave context to the growth of the game by discussing how sponsorship deals have evolved. We touched on who's buying tickets for the matches and the links between young girls watching the pros and playing themselves. Lastly, we spoke about how you reach a Gen Alpha audience too young for social media. Are you talking to them or their parents? Overall, Kaylee painted a picture of an organization which understands where it's at, the importance of this tournament, and recognizes how to get where it wants to go. Let's get into it as I welcome Kaylee to the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. So, Kaylee, as the UA for Women's Euro 2022 is about to kick off, what are your objectives? What does success look like for UEFA? I mean, we, we set out a couple of years ago, or Nadine Kessler, our head of women's football, set out our overarching strategy for women's football. And in relation to women's Euro, doubling the reach and value was a kind of overarching objective of what we wanted to do. So a real step change on from where we were back in 2017. So when we look at things like the ticket sales and the ambition for the ticket sales that we have, we're looking to double double that from 2017. Similarly with um, reach on the broadcast, that's where we're sitting just now. We have some probably newer objectives this time round with the advancement of digital uh, media and as you mentioned before, just with the general growth of the women's game, we've gone beyond just reaching people on social media platforms and you know reaching out to people to having people come to us for content as well. So trying to grow a bit more of that known audience on our platforms is a big part of this strategy, which is not something we focused at all on five years ago, obviously with the gap that we've had. Doubling the reach, doubling the value. It's our first ever Women's Euro with a dedicated sponsorship platform as well with new partners. So when we talk about value, that comes also from the sales uh, for both sponsorship and uh, marketing um, the broadcast rights, um, which I would say have, have more than more than doubled in that space on the basis that we didn't really have anything dedicated the last time around. So when you say value, that's commercial value to UEFA? Well, we try and think a little bit more about what value we can create that then builds that commercial value in a sense. We've sold the rights, but what we're focused on through the tournament now is making sure that the tournament delivers the value for the partners that they've invested in. So it's more about how do we maximise now the exposure, the opportunities for the partners to engage and activate those rights and build on the platform that we've started out. So yes, at the end of the day, there's a commercial reality to that in, in terms of what we're trying to bring into the tournament, but we've sold those rights a few years ago now albeit our last um, partner in, in TikTok joined just a couple of, of weeks ago but yeah now we're much more focused on what is it that we're delivering as a platform for these partners that drives value. And you talked about that changing hugely cycle on cycle versus for example well, five years ago how's that been for you personally how have you positioned it as you've gone out to market and talked to some of these partners? Well, it's an interesting one. So we went out to market from a sponsorship perspective in about 2017 and our first cycle was a three-year one. So 
in, it's a little bit complicated due to the COVID, but this this woman's Euro is technically part of that first cycle, albeit the second cycle has kicked off at the start of this current season and, and we'll go through to the Euro 25. So slight overlap in how we're delivering the rights. But we went out to market with a, a combined women's football package, which included this women's Euro and the women's Champions League finals for the last three years, some youth tournaments, some futsal and our replay strong marketing platform. A number of the partners who joined us at that point in time actually took the second cycle at that moment as well. I think everybody understands this is a longer term game. There's not a huge amount of immediate return from the game. Certainly where we were in 2017, that was seen by brands as a longer term partnership that they wanted to invest in and grow with us over time. So we didn't have to go back out to the market for the second cycle for every single slot that we had. A few of the partners are new, that's for sure. And I think we're, we're, we've seen new partners come on board, likes of Heineken and Pepsi and, and Just Eat Takeaway. These are partners who have been uh, with our men's platforms for a number of years and have seen the value that we've driven with the women's game more recently and are keen to expand their portfolio and balance that out with the women's side as well. So there's 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 definitely changes, I'd say, at the start of the cycle um, back in 2017. We were talking a lot more holistically about the momentum and building momentum of women's football. How do we how do we kickstart that? How do we drive the growth? Um, we're starting to move more into conversations with our partners now about how do we maximise that? How do we capitalise on that? How do we get them the value out of that as well? So it's a gradual process. Um, we do see big moments like the Women's World Cup in 2019, and I'm sure we'll see after this Women's Euro of uplift of interest. Um, but it is a, usually that settles down again and takes you a step change forward so we have to make sure we're ready for that but yeah just trying to trying to keep that momentum going and trying to drive that value back for the partners now who have taken a slight leap of faith perhaps back in 2017 to get on board with something that appeared to have potential and and a starting of something but has proven now in the last couple of years to be a worthwhile investment because the momentum has continued significantly was that a hard sell i mean it's such a short term culture and sponsorship tends there are so frequently sponsorships signed right on the eve of a tournament and you think that's an opportunity that comes up and someone grabs it straight away and yet you're talking about multi-cycle longer term planning did you have to sort of think which are the brands which want to be with us on this journey and did it surprise you at all that people were willing brands were willing to take this um slight leap of faith as you describe it <laughs> it didn't su- surprise me. It surprised, I think, our finance team who had signed off on the investment, but not didn't really expect a huge return. I don't think, certainly not immediately. Um, certainly, when we took the first deal to them, there was a bit of, oh, you actually have managed to sell some <laughs> something here. Yeah, I look. I think originally we did. We sat down. We went through the process of looking at, well, where is the market currently? We know, as you say, we've had. The women's rights were bundled in previously with the with the men's competitions. So the partners who came for the big men's competitions, be that the Champions League or, or the national team packages that we sell, were given or forced upon the women's competitions at that point in time. And unfortunately, often those rights were just left on the table and activated. And, and yes, that could have been a sign of the time slightly in terms of just the general kind of disinterest in, in the women in the women's side of the game. But it was also if you just look at it from a from a partner perspective, you pay so much for these rights and you know, you've got so much on your head to drive the biggest amount of value back from that. And when you look at what you've got on the table, doubling down on the men's side and getting maximizing that the best you can, it's clearly going to be the place that you stay. 
putting money over to the women's game at that moment in time when there wasn't that same momentum would have been a really difficult thing to convince anybody of internally at that moment in time. So when we unbundled the rights, I think, well, all we were really focused on at that moment in time was, look, these rights have to have value. We, we will find out from the market what those value that value essentially is. We had an idea of what we thought it was. To be fair, in the end, we were, we were pretty close on that, but it was just an idea. There was nothing not an awful lot to look at in the market that could tell us exactly how that would go. But where we were we were, were left was with a lot of partners who were really interested in the general movement around gender equality and, and making sure that their portfolio of rights and their staff believed that they worked in an environment that was looking at a more gender equal world and trying to contribute towards that. But also fortunately for us, I think in amongst that, the women's euro in its own right has grown doubled every year significantly every year every four year cycle the women's euro has doubled in reach and value or certainly close to that um or at least i think somewhere between about a 50 percent increase and in, in doubling over the various iterations of the tournament so there was a bit of at least i think market confidence and the media value alone of the women's euro in the package would return something concrete we had evidence of that the rest of the package the women's champions league how we could activate the women's participation platform was a little bit more unknown but i think most of the brands who came on were willing to take that i was going to say you know this Maybe once this was a purpose-led, we should do this because it's the right thing for society and it's also a good perception of, for the brand and it's, you know, slightly vanity or, you know, it's box ticking or whatever. But now, you know, whether it's the right thing or not, it, it has the audience to justify big investment from major brands. And I want to talk a little bit about that and particularly the fans who are going to be heading to matches and the ticketing here because... I always, when I think about ticketing, I think about the pandemic and when it hit and suddenly we had empty stadia and it just didn't feel right, did it? Whether, you know, you, there was no atmosphere, it was limited as a TV product. Of course, we got on with it and everybody did the best they could, but it made for something of a hollow experience. So, you know, I'm sure in previous women's tournaments, uh, as in this one, there's been that discussion about we need to have the stadium as, as full as we can. And so with that in mind, for a tournament like these Euros that we're on the eve of now. What goes into selecting the cities and the stadia that get to host matches? Well, I suppose first I'd be clear about how the process works in terms of how UEFA work with the local organising structure of any of the bidding uh, tournaments. So those associations who are bidding to host a tournament will make the proposals to us of which stadiums based on a criteria we have in our bidding structure of, of, of who comes forward. Um, so we don't, it's not UEFA that goes in and solicits, hey, these are the stadiums that, that we want, um, but we look at that together. We are in an interesting space. Clearly the bidding for this tournament happened a number of years ago, even before the, the Women's Euro 2017. Um, it would have started, we didn't finish the process until a couple of years ago. And the women's game has been evolving rapidly from there. So where do you where do you put the pin in terms of what stadiums that you use? Is a very challenging thing for any federation taking this on now. So from the FA's perspective, I mean, I can give you, you know, that this was their, their role to do this, but from, from where the process we went through with them, it was clear that, as you say, it would be better to have a full, slightly smaller stadium or a medium-sized stadium than having really low numbers and huge stadiums. The atmosphere just is very different. While there were some indications of the appetite for games growing, I mean, you've seen it significantly this season in the Women's Champions League with the full house season in the new Camp. Um, and a number of records broken across Europe with the Women's Champions League matches reaching into the kind of late teens, early 20,000s at, at games. 
that's great, but the difference between those showcase matches and the day-to-day, the kind of week-to-week matches is still quite significant. We're seeing steady growth, but that's not the norm now. So we can't pretend to ourselves that that's going to be the norm. Every game will be sold out. What we also haven't quite got to yet is a point where we have huge travelling fans behind women's football. I think the Women's Champions League final was the first time we saw with Barcelona a huge swathe of people coming to an away game and travelling for that. So we know we have to generate the majority still of ticket sales from the local communities and the stadiums that we will we will go forward with for the tournament. So there's a couple of things you have to think about there is making sure that you've got cities and stadiums who come forward. We don't pick the stadiums, they have to tell us that they want to be part of it as well. So it's not like we can just go to any stadium and say, hey, we're coming to you for the Women's Euro. It doesn't quite work like that. We have to get those stadiums and, and more so the cities have to be invested and want this to come to their city and they need to be willing to invest in that experience for fans and in the marketing behind the games as well. So there's quite a lot to look at there to think about. You know, if you've got a game between Portugal and Denmark or some, you know, just some some countries that, you know, within themselves are not going to bring, they'll bring some fans, but not huge amounts. How are you going to therefore fill a potentially 30, 40,000 seater stadium for a game, particularly in the group stages where there might be a lot riding on it, there might not. And you're asking a local community to take an interest in the story behind that game somehow. So there's a lot of ifs and buts and maybes around how that could pan out and what kind of games you might place where, etc. What you can see in the strategy for for this edition of the Women's Euro is certainly the showcase games, the opening and the closing have went big, and you know, and then we're um, being proven right on that one because the ticket sales are all but but sold out there. And the England games clearly are in the slightly bigger stadium in the group stages at least, and and have sold out along that route as well. And then we have some varying degrees of stadiums beyond that, and you know from. City of Manchester Stadium, of course, which is the smallest of the portfolio up into about the MK Dons type size, and you talk about 30,000. So there's a there's a variety in there. Of course, you have to make a lot of those decisions before draws are made as well, so that you don't exactly know who's going to go where. So these are all the factors that we're considering. Is it perfect? I, you know, we don't know, but I think it's as close to as we could possibly put a finger on at that moment in time where we had to make these decisions to get an idea of how do we create atmosphere at these games. A lot to consider, as you say. You were to acknowledging without necessarily uh, staying out loud, there has been some criticism about it from the public. Some people saying, you know, the stadia aren't big enough or they're sort of clustered together geographically. Do you think that's justified or do you think the die was cast, the decision was made, the bid was put in? I mean, I think I've seen some people say, well, why can't you change it now? You know, if there's a 5,000-seater stadium, why can't you move it to... St. James's Park in the northeast, which doesn't have a game. And maybe it's not your position, Katie, but I'm interested to hear your point of view. No, I mean, I, I, I definitely won't go too far on this one because it's, yeah, it's not, it's not, it completely in my remit. But what I would say is that the planning that goes into these matches are, is years behind it. The, the cities have invested, you know, they have to come forward with an idea and, and prove how they're going to market the, the, the tournament, what they're going to do for fans. Was, all of that takes years and years and years in the planning to, to get to a point that you can do this. So moving the game at any point to a, to a bigger stadium is is really a, not fair in the cities who have come forward and, and invested that time and, and bid in those spaces and just not realistic with the planning. I know people might say to you, well, you managed to move some uh, finals in the last few years due to COVID at, at the last minute, but these are very different situations with one-off games, whereas we're talking about a tournament that has to have airports nearby, you have to have infrastructure for hotels, for the teams to stay in and the training centres. 
there's you know distances that they have to you know not go over the amount to travel between games and staying etc there's just so many layers that I suppose football fans and people generally won't understand and shouldn't have to you know it's not that's that's our job to work all that out but I can understand why at a high level it's easy to jump on it and say hey look this is where the momentum's going but I think on the whole on the balance of things based on where we are with ticket sales at this moment in time and how many we have to say to sell you know we're not we're not yet at any point where we'll, we'll sell out this tournament completely we're looking pretty strong for hitting the target we had of the 525 which is doubling from where we were back in uh, the Netherlands but we're not there so I think on the whole that's 525 that's 525,000 total ticket sales 25,000 is the kind of target for us yeah out of somewhere between 650 and 700 that are available as such depending on how we configure the stadiums on the whole, I would say, you know, we're not even, we're not at that 525 yet, although we're approaching it, so we're in a good place. But I think on the whole, the FA's decisions and stadiums have been justified in the actual data and numbers and the community engagement. And yeah, I, I can appreciate the frustrations of some, whether that's players or fans in certain parts of the country. But I, from what I've experienced with how the, the FA went about this, I think they've done a really good job of, of planning everything that we've got in the, the tournament and trying to make this tick as many of the boxes in a very moving landscape as we were planning as they possibly could. It was interesting what you said about not having many fans travel from abroad. That's obviously um, something that springs to mind when you think about men's Euros or World Cups. So it's mostly UK-based ticket purchases. What else do you know about them? Are these hardcore fans? Are they big eventers who like to get involved in something new happening in the stadium? Do they pick based on location? Is it just proximity, match around the corner, let's go watch that? Or is it about the teams which are playing? Or even possibly even individual players which they might get to see? It's been changing over time. So I think on the whole, and again, the, the ticketing strategy and sales sits more firmly with the, the LOS and they've been doing the more national part of that. And I've been supporting more with the, the PNA sales and trying to, to trying to drive a bit of a target around those traveling fans. But from what they've been reporting so far and has been coming out of the sales, we know for sure that there's a far higher percentage of women buying tickets for, for this tournament than we would normally see at a UEFA tournament. Still not more than 50%, but it's, it's much more balanced and closer to that 50-50 mark, which is very different in comparison to potentially a men's euro. It's a little bit younger. The number of tickets per purchase is more, so you're, which it would indicate it's a lot of families and groups coming together, young people coming together to games, and not just individual fans sorting themselves out for their own tickets and you know as part of their their normal habits. So yeah, we can definitely see there's a much more broad ages in in ticket sales. There's more families. Um, it's a lot more gender balanced in terms of the ticket purchasers. That comes from the data, but you know when you go to women's football a lot and you look around the stadium, that's the general feel that you've got. Is it's it's not all just young girls who watch you know women's football. That's this portion of the, the the crowd, and it's an important proportion, but it's not actually one of the biggest. We know from a TV perspective, for example, up until more recently, it's still been very predominantly men who watch women's football on TV or on any stream, and even through the Women's Champions League data and things that we're, we're starting to get back from this season still predominantly men who will watch the sport because that's where the bigger numbers lie. So we're nurturing this newer audience and it's getting better and, and more diverse. But we still have a you know a huge proportion of just football fans who love football and will watch a variety of type of football who are engaging with the women's game. Very much, and I don't want to repeat myself from previous podcasts, but very much what I spoke to 
uh, Nora Hendrickson at MediaMonks and Katie Lewis at DAZONE about this um, more parity between genders in terms of who's watching and who's going to games, but still, you know, men over 50% and women under 50% in terms of ticket purchasing and uh, and attendance. So interesting to see that bear out also with you. The, the bit I was talking, I was sort of trying to go down the track with on whether player power moves the needle. Because it's interesting, you said you could have Denmark versus Portugal and they wouldn't bring a huge number of people over from their countries. And I wonder, would Denmark versus Portugal be a big draw in this women's Euros for the local audience? And then I started thinking, well, would it be a huge draw in the men's? And then I started thinking, do you know what? It doesn't matter if people care about Denmark versus Portugal in a men's match. If Cristiano Ronaldo's playing, that stadium's selling out, you know. We talk about player power quite a lot on this podcast. I've talked about it a few times. And the stat I like to pull out is Manchester United consider themselves the world's biggest football club. They have 58 million followers on Instagram. Cristiano Ronaldo's got 450. You know, it's eight times bigger. Do you see that, I guess, in general, in the women's game as a whole, um, with any players? And then when it comes to things like buying a ticket for the Euros, are there any players who can convince people, just because she's playing, I've got to be there? I don't know yet. I'm interested to see with this term. I think what our main strategy with the Women's Champions League this season has been to focus on the players and to build a campaign around getting people to know who they are. Because most of the data that we've seen up until the last year or two has told us that people can't recall the names of any women's football players on the whole. I mean, it's not, or certainly very few people can, without prompting, tell you the name of a, a female footballer. Certainly out with their own country, maybe one or two players from their own national team, but beyond that, not so much. I would hesitate to guess that this season, based on how Barcelona have done with the likes of Alexia and how much profile she's been given through brands and the club and the competition and her performances and everything else that's went with that. Ada has had that for a few years um, and now coming back to the Euros, which is great to see her there and to bring that with her. We we haven't seen that yet to see if we if that will start to, to come through. So I think the, the women's football community who know these players will be the ones who will dot around these games to see them. Yes. Are there big swathes of those numbers yet? I would say probably not, but enough to now be making sure that there's a good few thousand fans, you know, as a starting point at every game and building from there. So is the mainstream or the kind of general men's football fan who might take an interest in watching Women's Euro as it goes along that aware of individual players yet? Certainly the data we've had to date would say no, but the last season, which we've not seen the results of quite yet in terms of either through the data and the research that we do or just the general uh, changing of the uh, movement of the needle, as you put it, will be interesting to see. will be interesting to see the individual star power if we start to get that. I know certainly from working on the marketing side for a few years that it's been quite a change in how the female athletes put themselves forward now. There was a real period where we found it really hard to get girls and women to stand out on their own and trying to be a star. There was a reluctance to be individually profiled and individually pushed. There was a very togetherness of the game and nobody quite wanting to put their head up above the parapet and say, hey, I'm you know here and, and willing to stand out. You see the Americans have been probably a lot better at that over the years at building their own brands and their own profiles. But I've definitely seen that change in the last number of years. A, because a lot of the players have been going professional, getting agents, getting more support on that side, I'm sure, as well. And B, just getting confidence to know that you can, you know, be a personality and be a team player at the same time. And it helps grow the game and grow their own brand and I'm sure their own revenues as well, which are not 
as we know, they're not huge in the women's game. Maybe for some of the top players now, we're in a good space, but the general salaries, so trying to top that up with some of the media work that's available now, the brand work, etc., is definitely growing. Uh, that whole space is growing as we've added more sponsors and clubs have added more sponsors. The need to have ambassadors and use the players in campaigns has grown. A long-winded way to tell you that I'm interested to see, as you might be, to see how that might impact this. But I wouldn't say it's impacting the ticket sales hugely at this moment in time. Where we might see a little bit of a change now is, and I think the FA have been working a bit with obviously embassies in the UK to try and look at you know expat communities within the UK for certain teams who might be more aware of their own national team players at this moment in time. And that might be helping drive a little bit of that interest up as well. And so yeah, something we're keeping a keen eye on to see how this has been has been shifting over the last while. Katie, I'm keen to talk about younger girls, and we've touched on it a couple of times, so the Gen Alpha girls who are probably about to see their first, about to be exposed to their first ever major women's football tournament. And I'm keen to talk about it in the context of UEFA with the stated goal of saying that they want to double the number of girls and women playing football by 2024. How are you going about that? How's it going so far? And what's the link between getting young girls to watch the Euros this summer and ultimately taking an interest and playing the game for hopefully many years to come? Well, it's been a big project. I mean, we started before we even really looked properly at the last Women's Euro or the Women's Champions League. Participation was our starting point. We knew we had to get that up and we we looked quite hard into the, the data to understand why girls weren't playing it's now pretty well understood. Most people understand the barriers that girls face when trying to play football, whether that's accessibility, culture, um, just visibility, yeah, ability to reach, etc. So we, we, we understand those things. I mean, over the last few years, we've introduced a number of projects. On the marketing side specifically, we had two key projects that we worked on, the Playmakers Project, which is in partnership with Disney, where um, we brought Disney on board. We looked at the data. We knew that girls, uh, five to eight-year-olds who were not coming into football, where they were being successful, getting girls that age into other sports, play and storytelling and things featured heavily in these types of programs. Very different environments were created, different styles of coaching were best applied, uh, and a number of other things that we probably don't have time to go specifically deep diving into today but we've basically designed a project on that specifically to target eight five to eight year old girls who are not brought into football through the more traditional offering some girls do and we're, that's not we're not saying all girls should come to playmakers but this is very specifically to try and get more of those numbers in now we launched that in february 2020 which was uh, in hindsight not the ideal moment in time to launch a, a pan-european uh, participation program so it had a bit of a false start and um, we did some at home activities etc but that's been getting off the ground this year and as the results coming out of that are just amazing to see across Europe how countries are using this to, to grow the game um, so the real results of that will be evident in the next few years but early signs are really good our secondary problem with girls in the women's game was dropout. With every sport, it's the problem in football. It was particularly profound through the teenage and early adult years. Girls are just falling out of the game in huge, huge numbers. So the Together We Play Strong platform is our kind of caveat, our um, attempt to, to try and work against some of those things. Um, A, trying to make the game more cool. I think that was one of the big feedback things is girls were not thinking women's football was cool. They wanted to be, their confidence in those teenage years is quite low. They tend to go with what the pack is doing and whatever all their other friends are interested in. And that wasn't football. And that wasn't, you know, if you're the, I always say, if you're the best 
play a football player in the class and you're a boy, you're the hero of the class, everybody loves you. If you're the best girl in the class, you're just a bit odd and people are not really that interested. So girls at that young, impressionable age feeling a little bit left out from their friends are dropping out of the game. So we try to build more community digitally, reach girls where they were on social media, show them this world of women's football that exists. It might not be evident in their small school or their small club where they might be the only girl, but this huge thing exists and you can network with these girls, you can talk to the players, you can watch their vlogs, listen to their podcasts, follow them on social media, come into, you know, we've, even more recently we've been building more like metaverse spaces where you can come in and have one-to-one chats with players and, and watch draws together or matches together and things. So really focusing on building a community around those girls that we can take forward and then through that that interest level introduce the the competitions to them clearly it's important to get them more role models so the women's euro is a huge opportunity to to do that for the younger ones so we've really focused for women's euro specifically on the, the maybe the bridge between those two projects i just described so between the eight and 11 year old age is what we focused on for women's euro Why? Because I think for most of us, that's the age you are around when you remember your first international tournament, watching your first international tournament. You might remember one or two before it, but that's the first one you can remember a lot from, usually, when you're around that age. The challenge we've got with Women's Euro is the reason that you were watching it, whether, you know, Men's World Cup, Men's Euro, whatever that might have been when we were younger, was because Dad had it on the TV. And we can't just rely on Dad having it on the TV to reach these girls for them to see this. We know that's happening more and more, more in some countries than others, etc. So as a pan-European approach, we can't rely just on that free marketing from dad, passing it down the generations type approach for women's euro. So we tried to have a think about, well, where are these girls and where can we reach them? So we, we went after a bit of a three-pronged attack. They're at school, they're on YouTube, and they're on Roblox. That was the three key platforms that we could find to reach these these girls. And we built out a bit of a strategy and program from there. So so for school, we have already the UEFA Football and Schools program that's live in all 55 associations. Most of these countries are focused on football and schools driving more female participation. So we already had the infrastructure there and the, the coaches and the network to, to reach kids in school. We just had to provide better content and some more inspiring content for them. So we created a, a website and some skills videos with our mascots and our ambassador players. We had one player from each national association who's participating in the Euro. So including Pernilla Harder and Matt Derrickson and Alexia Patella. So we got all the top players players we could from across the countries to join together, create content with us for these kids. Uh, We put it on YouTube, we put it on this platform for the school so the kids can all reach it there. And then we also built a platform and a world in Roblox where you've, you know, I'm sure everybody's seen the, the recent stats around that platform. It is, you know, it has exploded in the last few years for this particular demographic. Um, 50 million users a day, I think, on the platform, most of them in this age range that we we're talking about. So we know they're there. So while it might not be in UEFA's best interest to get kids playing computer games and that's not really the strategy here we're not encouraging any kids to go to roblox we're only talking to the ones basically who are already there of which there are loads of them and we're introducing them to women's euro through obby game or a number of different obbies as they call them like obstacle courses where you can go in you train your skills with the mascots etc then you take on these different challenges related to the women's euro so it's a, it's a light touch in, in some respects but it's a a direct way that we can engage with kids in a relatively safe environment where they already are hanging out. They're already doing that. We're not advertising this anywhere to tell them, hey, go and download this app or anything. It's just talking to those kids that exist on that platform already. 
light touch, but not easy in its implementation, right? I mean, you know, Roblox, you're absolutely right, hugely popular platform, but a new, a new step into a new area for UEFA. Multi-market is never easy. Working with schools is frequently pretty difficult as well. So I think that's quite an achievement, convincing the schools to be involved and stepping into Roblox and finding this path to get girls interested in football. I suppose the one thing I'm not quite yet convinced of is how do you take that interest in football and convince girls not to leave Roblox alone, but to go and play it? So I think, like I say, that, I mean, we've not asked the schools to promote Roblox for us in any way or anything like that. We, we've, we've, like I say, we're talking about Roblox in Roblox. That, that's what we do there. And we introduce the Women's Euro. What we have done is a bit of a link, like I say, is we've put the more skills-based content and the more physical content on YouTube. And the way we've linked those together is to work with a few of those kind of YouTube Roblox influencers who will, the kids will spend time in Roblox. And if they like that platform, they'll spend time searching for Roblox content on YouTube. Then they kind of unsurface with some of their favourite YouTubers, some of this Women's Euro content, which then leads them to our skills content and encourages them to get to know the players, etc. Is that a foolproof journey? I don't know. <laughs> it's the best we can um, we can put together just now. But like I say, the schools element is the bit that we already had the infrastructure for. We can reach the kids in schools. We're delivering football to them on the ground in that space. And so these are just ways that wherever kids are spending their time, it doesn't mean that one has to jump from one to the other. It just means that every time they're in a space and spending time, they're getting an opportunity and to, to engage with, with women's Euro, with women's football. And hopefully become comfortable with that environment and that type of content. And particularly for, for girls who might more traditionally, if they see a football game, not think it's for them. It's more what, where the boys play, etc. So trying to make this more mainstream in all those platforms. So we're not pretending that there's some magical journey that kiddie gets trapped here and then we take them here and we take them here. I mean, ethically, that's probably not even something we should be trying to achieve, if, if nothing else. But we're just trying to make sure that we let kids engage with what we've got to offer in the spaces they are. And, and rather than being naive and think, oh, we can make them all come in a nice, happy way to this particular platform we have, and this is where all our nice football content lies. So just trying to, yeah, be where they are, make it relatively strong in terms of the touch points we have, still focus as much as possible on the physical playing, but also being realistic with this is where they are. So if we, we're not going to be present there, somebody else is going to be and they're going to take their attention and, and build brand affinity with them. And that's just part of it at that age, is just getting them comfortable with us, what it's about, that there is a women's euro. If nothing else, that's a bit of an achievement compared to where we've been. How about the role of parents? I'm not just talking about Roblox here. I'm talking about the overarching goal of getting more girls uh, playing football. Presumably, you need to get the parents on board uh, in this ambition to get their girls to play the beautiful game. How do you go about that? Is it different with mums and, and dads? Or actually, in this case, is it just about here are the benefits which playing football can bring to your beloved daughter? Uh, yeah, lots of good points to touch on in there. So um, to go back to the um, Playmakers example um, that we gave you, so the, the five to eight-year-old program with Disney, when we were looking at the, the kind of science or the research behind how to build the best program for five to eight-year-olds, one of the other things that popped out was how still to this day, and it'll be, it'll be changing, so these are quite sweeping statements, it's not the same for everybody, but on the whole, it's still mum who will organise the extracurricular activities at that younger age when they're getting introduced to new sports, working around school, etc. And while mum traditionally, or just because 
culturally, usually in each country, boys play football, so she'll not think twice about putting boys into football. Because she's not necessarily had a good experience of football, when she's been growing up and maybe she played another sport, maybe she had gymnastic or track or swimming or dance, that's where she'll tend to put her daughter, where she feels more comfortable with the activity that she'll be doing and more familiar, essentially, with it. So a bit of a challenge for us there was the fact that we don't have a huge amount of contact with mums. You know, our database is not full of of women of that age. Our our social media channels are 96% male or certainly were a few years ago when we started building this project. So we knew that our brand as UEFA, while it was really influential with dad, was not going to reach mum if we just stuck to our traditional channels and our owned platforms. So not only did Disney bring those kind of characters and stories that the girls already had affinity with to make them interested, it brought a brand associated with us that would give us a bit more trust and, and interest from mums. Dad tends to be, and there's a few countries, this is not our research, but I know there's a few countries have told me through their own research that dad tends to be the key ambassador or advocate once she gets into football. Once he realises that she's quite into it and wants to play, his love of football kicks in and then he'll do the drive into clubs. And when it gets a bit more like football (laughs) and, and what he thinks about football, he is a big advocate. So it's not a case that the dad's not important in any of this journey, but we just had to make sure that we didn't just rely on that and that aspect at the start. The other thing that we've been looking quite heavily at, and this was quite predominant in Eastern Europe and a lot of the countries that we we spent time with a few years ago trying to understand their particular challenges, was that the life skills that you get from playing team sport are kind of just a given in a boy's world. Like He will play anyway, it's a nice added bonus almost, but the we know they exist and more academic and sport-minded people talk about it the resilience the teamwork the communication the leadership all these elements that you can build into your character and into your skill set as a young person come through sport you don't learn so much of that in the classroom and what we were finding in eastern europe was that a lot of the parents didn't want their girls playing football because they were so focused on their studies. It was almost like now that academics was a focus for girls in these in, in, in all of our countries, that football was just a distraction. They didn't parents in a well-meaning way felt they didn't really need and that they should be. Re- they just wanted them to have a good career. They had a lot of kind of high hopes for them, and that's where they wanted them putting their energy. It was really surprising to me that that it wasn't well understood that the academic plus the sporting part makes such a huge difference in a, in a young person's career. And you know there was lots of research coming out of the US at that time. Talk, I think EY did some, some really good stuff that showed that upwards of 98% of women in C-suite positions, as they call them, um, you know, high blue chip companies, high positions in these big companies, where it stayed with team sport through, through college and were coming out of this kind of athlete world and what they'd learned through that athletic pieces alongside their academics was really powerful. So we've decided to try and focus in a little bit more on that just now. So we've got a, a TV spot running on the men's, well, actually women's as well, but on predominantly on men's Champions League, Europa League and Nations League games, etc., where we've got those rights. We have a spot running there, which essentially shows a young girl in a football strip doing an adult's job, you know, just trying to connect those skills together to parents just to make them the ones we're trying to, to, to connect with are the ones who 
want these things for their daughter. They just haven't connected football to being a catalyst to her getting there and just trying to make that connect for them and get them more comfortable with the idea of football. Of course, the federations have to make the availability and of the infrastructure and the opportunities for these girls, but that's been our big focus this year is to try and connect that story to people because it's an it's, for me, it's just an interesting one when you work in sport, it just seems really normal, but actually we don't really market participation. We've never had to. It just happened, so actually thinking properly about how we make this happen with girls has been an interesting process. It's a great answer, Kaylee, to a very interesting question. I mean, chock-a-block full of insight there, and I can feel you sort of almost straining to use this insight, even if it reinforces gender stereotypes, to ultimately try to break those gender stereotypes. And maybe in one generation, we're not talking about it's still mum who decides what to do and dad only gets involved when daughter's any good at it, or that, you know, we're fighting against girls thinking, you know, they just have to focus on education or whatever. And it leads me on, I think, Kaylee, to my final question, which is, and we don't have all the data on our audience listening to this podcast to know how many are fathers or mothers, but what would you say to those fathers and mothers who are listening about why their daughters should watch the Euros? I think you see not only from the, the quality of the football side, look, getting any kid to watch 90 minutes of football these days is, is a difficult task. So let's let's take this slowly a little bit and be realistic about what we're, we're looking for here. I've got two football daft girls in my household, one nearly 16 and going in to play kind of semi-professional football now and still won't sit and watch 90 minutes of football unless it's soccer aid because she knows half the YouTubers. Like This is the world that we're, we're working with at the moment, but both love playing their football. I think the storytelling though around these athletes is going to be really strong as well as what happens on the field and being able to really introduce girls to these incredible role models. Like I just have yet to meet a bad egg in women's football within these players and, and somebody who doesn't have an incredible story or something really powerful that girls can learn from. And we're at a moment in time where these players are still very accessible um, and are telling their stories for oh, sometimes the first time and are being brought to the fore. So alongside the football element to inspire them what you can achieve and the standard of football I am absolutely sure is going to be phenomenal based on what we've seen over the last couple of years and the strength of some of the squads and the competitiveness so all of that in terms of an entertainment package will be there but in terms of young girls specifically why they, they what will they get from this I think just getting to know some of these athletes and having some incredible role models in their lives that they can follow over the next few years compared to some of the stuff that's out there and, and what girls are, are marketed about and who they're kind of most drawn to, etc. I think as a parent, I would certainly want my my kids and, and do want my kids to be more in awe of these types of stories and achievements and, and lifestyles than, than some others. So without being too snooty about it, it's quite a wholesome space to <laughs> to be involved in and and, uh, and for young girls to, to get their inspiration from, I believe. Kaylee, thank you very much for your time. And if people want to find out more or hear more from you or UEFA, where should they head? I'm sure people have heard enough from me today. But um, yeah, I think the uh, the social channels for the, the competition are, are really strong and thriving this year. So it's one of the best places to follow along. So on Instagram, on Twitter, on, on Facebook, and particularly our TikTok channel for the younger ones who are interested in that platform with some great content going on there. And then obviously UEFA.com, all the information about where to watch, when to watch, who to follow, who the star players are, who's the best players. You will get a lot of information from our editorial teams there who are, who are putting a huge amount of content out just now. So 
best places to, to hang out. And if you want more content like this podcast, please make sure you're following in your preferred podcast platform. Please subscribe and give us five stars. Lastly, the show will be taking a break during the summer, but we'll be back soon. So in the meantime, why not take a look through the archives and have a listen to some of the shows you may have missed. All the best. The Football Co. Business Podcast. The most creative minds and innovative thinkers in football in association with Soccer X. Connecting football for 25 years.